company. March two, three, four. 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 March company. And now it's time for Gray Matters. <clears throat> well, uh, good evening. It's just about 6.30 p.m. And welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And tonight we're going to kind of devote our most, most, if not all, of the half hour to uh, the 40th anniversary of Watergate. Um... Richard Nixon was informed of the Watergate break-in. Interestingly, he was on vacation at the house of Robert. And I've always had problems pronouncing this fellow's name. Aplanap? Aplanap. Strange name. I've, I need to do a little research into the, uh, what, you know, with the etymology of that name. What, what yeah. kind of a guy is Aplanap? Well, it's probably... Nixon liked to associate himself with a lot of... Uh, anti-communist ethnic type, so it might be a, a Eastern European name or maybe even Middle Eastern. In any event, uh, on finding out about the Watergate break-in, Richard Nixon threw an ashtray into the wall. So think American Beauty, Kevin Spacey, and the plate of asparagus. Of course, Nixon uh, dined on cottage cheese on top of a pineapple ring for lunch. To add to the comedy of the man. Well, and there is a lot of comedy associated with Nixon. Let's let's be frank about it. And uh, obviously, longtime and regular listeners will know that we make numerous <laughs> references to uh, the 37th president of the United States. I always say that he's my favorite cartoon supervillain because he has that sort of shoulders hunched. There's, everything about the man was uncomfortable and awkward and uh, painful. Yeah. And uh, as we'll mention today uh, with some, you know, I see you've got your Cutler Abuse of Power book, oh, yeah. uh, Watergate tape uh, transcriptions. Uh, Cutler, one of the uh, preeminent Watergate scholars, Stanley Cutler, he's got a number of books available. Just this afternoon, looking at the television to see if there were any special programs on later tonight uh, commemorating this historic uh, uh, occasion. Uh, and there is nothing. There's yeah. nothing on television explicitly uh, about uh, the Watergate crisis. And, of course, today is really just the uh, 40th anniversary of the break-in, the, the, the burglary itself. Yeah, the, we, the, the, the weekend of the break-in. Basically, it, it happened on a Friday night, uh, June 17th. Um, Nixon was, was called by Colson. And, of course, Colson uh, himself passed away earlier uh, this year. Of course, Watergate was the culmination of 
pretty much a systemic abuse of power by the President of the United States in which all sorts of shenanigans were um, undertaken, entertained, uh, break-ins, planting evidence, leaking information, leaking documents, uh, leaking information to friendly people in the news media. Uh, Evans, and Novak, Evans and Novak, by the way, were a couple of his favorite uh, recipients of deliberate leaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly murder, but uh, the, the break-in itself, there's always been a little bit of a mystery about it, but uh, I think that the participants, the significant participants, have always said that it was... Um, we were worried about what they had on us, not trying to get dirt on them. That's at least Gordon Liddy's uh, take on the matter. Liddy <laughs> is still alive. And, uh, boy, I don't know if I could trust anything uh, that a man like uh, Liddy would say, uh, even with a cement truck of salt. And I notice you have Hunter S. Thompson Yeah, there. the great shark hunt. Uh, of course, uh, Thompson, uh, the great uh, Hunter S., Dr. Gonzo, uh, considered Nixon to be his foil, really. And I think the two were very well suited to each other in their extremities. Uh, both were great football enthusiasts as well, and of course there's a famous story where they sit uh, in the back of a car and talk football, only football, because Thompson was the only... Uh, in the uh, back in the, of... In the limo, yeah. right? Uh, Thompson was the only journalist in the uh, White House press corps who followed Who knew NFL. anything about football. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, um, I'm trying to find the reference in here, there's a piece in the uh, Great Shark Hunt, which was originally published in Rolling Stone magazine, um, that's all about, it's called Fear and Loathing at the Watergate, Mr. Nixon, Mr. Nixon has cashed his check. And it explains here briefly that Hunter Thompson was actually at the Watergate Hotel on June 17th. Wow. He spent uh, the bulk of the evening there swimming in the pool for uh, about an hour and a half. And then uh, having some drinks in the bar with a uh, an NBC Sports writer, mm-hmm. um, and they talked football, and uh, you know wh- whatever was going on in the NFL that year. While uh, meanwhile, three floors up, uh, McCord, Liddy, and the Cubans, the Cubans are forgetting about the tape. Yes, the piece of tape, uh, a memoir written by James McCord, one of the Watergate burglar- burglars. Um, Interestingly, he was an ex- expert in bugging and electronic surveillance. I've always thought that the uh, Fra- Francis Ford Coppola movie, The Conversation, mm. is almost... I-, I believe he actually wrote the screenplay before Watergate, but it-, it came out, ironically, in 74. And I've always thought that the character played uh, in the movie, the main character, uh, Coyle... Uh, Gene Hackman as a surveillance yeah. uh, expert. Portrayed by Gene Hackman uh, very adeptly was almost a m- microcosm, uh, an archetype of Charles, uh, of uh, James McCord, who uh, wrote a memoir after he uh, got out of prison, so to speak, called A Piece of Tape. And of course, the irony, the double entendre of that title itself, because of the Watergate tapes and the fact that they got foiled. Uh, on the night of the break-in by um, duct tape that was taped over a lock, one of those kind of doors that would lock behind you, and they somehow forgot about it. It's interesting, in yesterday's sports section of the New York Times, they have a a baseball uh, plumbers in the outfield meet the all-Watergate team. (laughs) And it's a wonderful little 
uh, review of famous and infamous and not so famous baseball players that uh, played different uh, roles in Major League Baseball history that had last names that corresponded to some of the president's men. And, of course, all the president's men. Speaking of which, by the way, Robert Redford is working on a documentary about Watergate. Oh, Redford played uh, Bob Woodward, of course, in the movie All the President's Men that I think is one of the better uh, political, historical movies of all time uh, in which uh, um, basically it's a it's a recapitulation of their book. And, of course, Woodward and Bernstein uh, were it's a it's a criminal detective story. Crucial Par to, excellence. you know, unveiling the story. And, of course, we've now learned uh, through the death of Mark W. Felt, who was uh, in a high-ranking official in the FBI, uh, he was Deep Throat. So he was giving, he was friends with Woodward. That was Woodward's secret source called Deep Throat, ironically, after a porn movie, which we won't go into. I doubt Nixon saw it, but who knows? <laughs> Maybe one of those nights with B.B. One of those nights with BB. I used to roll up and down the Potomac uh, drinking. They didn't drink brewskis. They drank cocktails. Highballs. Highballs. Frolicking as, in the pool. As Nixon would uh, put it. And, of course, you know, Watergate was the culmination of Nixon's paranoia and obsession with um, secrecy, leaking information. And, uh, of course, earlier in the... Uh, the actual, the amazing thing is, one year before Watergate, in the Cutler book, we get a an idea of Nixon and his devious mind. Uh, this, of course, is what led to the Plumbers Unit, the creation of the Plumbers Unit, which was the Pentagon Papers case. And Nixon, in 1970, had developed a thing called the Houston Plan, named after uh, an assistant that worked in somewhere in the lower bowels of the Nixon administration that was essentially a sort of private, uh, off-the-shelf intelligence agency that would work on behalf of the president. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, ironically, was opposed to the Houston plan, it was, as it was called. But eventually this led to the, um, the, the, the creation of the plumber's unit uh, that uh, starred E. Howard Hunt, Gordon Liddy, and James McCord, Real quickly, McCord's important role in, in, in exposing the cover-up was that in court, uh, when the burglars were sentenced in January of 1973, he uh, spilled the beans. He basically said there's been a massive cover-up here, and Nixon is paying hush money. Hunt, at this point, E. Howard Hunt, was blackmailing the president, and uh, the president was paying the blackmail in cold, hard cash, cash that he had in his safe, uh, from sources like Howard Hughes, B.B. Rebozo, and Mr. Aplenek. Anyway, on the 17th of June, 1971, this conversation in the Cutler book on page 3 is unbelievable. Just read a little section of it. It's between him, Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and Kissinger. The big four. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> Hald Haldeman says, you can... Maybe uh, you can maybe blackmail uh, Johnson on this stuff. The Pentagon Papers. Nixon says, what? You can blackmail Johnson on this stuff, and it might be worth doing. The bombing halt stuff is all in the same file or in some of the same hands. Nixon, do we have it? I've asked for it. You said you didn't have it. Haldeman says, I can't find it. 
Kissinger says, we have nothing here, Mr. President. Nixon says, well, damn it. I asked for that because I need it. Kissinger, but Bob and I have been trying to put the damn thing together. Haldeman, we have a basic history in constructing our own, but there is a file on it. Nixon, where? Haldeman, Houston swears to God there's a file on it, and it's at the Brookings Institute, which is a centrist think tank. Nixon, Bob, Bob, now you remember the Houston plan, which, of course, is the White House-sponsored break-ins as part of a domestic counterintelligence operation. That's in parenthesis. That's uh, Cutler's uh, reference to the Houston plan. Nixon says, implement it. Kissinger, now Brookings has no right to have classified documents. Nixon, I want it implemented. God damn it, get in and get those files. Blow the safe. Get it. And uh, Kissinger says, I wouldn't be surprised if Brookings had the files. And, of course, the files were a reference to the bombing halt uh, debate in which the Nixon candidacy back in 1968 had sort of messed up the Paris peace talks. And the Pentagon Papers, of course, were commissioned by Robert McNamara uh, when he became disenchanted with the Vietnam War. So he ordered a top secret, quote unquote, classified national security agency entire review of how and why we got into Vietnam. Nixon, of course, in 1969 had been exposed by the New York Times, a reporter by the name of William Beecher, that reported in May of 1969 that Richard Nixon had started a secret war in Cambodia. This, of course, uh, led to the Cambodian Civil War, the eventual overthrow of Prince Sihanouk by the American-backed Lon Nol, and the ultimate destruction of Cambodia, which eventually led to the Khmer Rouge. Uh, they, they, that was also part of the Kent State, Jackson State, mm-hmm. uh, anti-war protests in 1970 when more of this information came out. And it just shows, here's the President of the United States talking openly with top officials in the United States government, get into the Brookings Institute, I want those files, blow the safe, get the documents, I need the documents. <laughs> Well, of course, this is a, a, a desperate man, and at this point, uh, this is just they have to sort of basically wing a cover job on the fly. Uh, and so there's an element of desperation on it. And it's interesting how book after book notes that despite his huge victory in the uh, presidential election of 1972, uh, that the early months of uh, his second administration are marked with sullen frustration. Yeah. And just a real psychological basket case uh, of an individual. Uh, The open criminality and the degree throughout the Watergate tapes uh, in which uh, he sort of uh, attempts to make things relative and say, well, the burglars, uh, they weren't caught with anything. They they broke in. They didn't steal anything. So that's not a hell of a lot of crime uh, as though it's excusable uh, in such a framework. Um, and of course, uh, his uh, bizarre uh, and, and post-resignation comment to David Frost that when the president does it, it's not a crime. Right. Which, of course, could there be a more uh, naive is not really the right word of an unguarded moment, because uh, certainly Nixon was not a naive man, uh, a very 
you know, calculating and uh, meticulous schemer. Uh, and after the uh, intense pressure of the, his uh, final months in office where uh, Defense Secretary James Schlesinger gives orders to the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, do not accept any uh, war uh, commands from the chief executive. Right. And what's interesting about the Folsom, the Don Folsom book, Nixon's Darkest Secrets, which has just been published this year, a fascinating expose of his mm. sort of twisted personality, uh, some of the drinking problems that led him to be at times almost dysfunctional. Some of the uh, anecdotes are outright amusing where uh, people are uh, famous people. Uh, Brent Scowcroft at one point has to take a phone call from uh, you know, the French president, because Nixon's basically uh, drunk on the couch. Yeah, passed out. The press secretary, Ron Ziegler, uh, sighs and mutters to uh, a low-level aide, oh, the old man's really high again tonight. And, of course, Ziegler is, is famous. He was the press secretary for Richard Nixon, and shortly after the Watergate tape, uh, Nixon uh, instructed him to uh, issue a statement in which the infamous phrase, third-rate burglary, he uh, Nixon eventually issues a statement in which he claims that that's beneath the. Uh, I'll find it in a second, but I'll, uh, to get the exact quote, but that's it's pretty beneath, early after the story breaks. Yeah. yeah, beneath the dignity of the White House, we wouldn't consider something like this, as if this wasn't being considered and had been going on for uh, most of the right. presidency of Richard Nixon. Uh, it's incredible stuff. It's an amazing story, and of course, what's interesting about the Folsom book is that. A psychiatrist uh, is quoted late in the book that uh, Richard Nixon had a personality that made him poorly suited to hold public office. <laughs> well, I want to just sort of dwell on the, uh, one of the later chapters in the Folsom book for a moment, uh, because, again, we're talking today about the anniversary of this burglary, which, of course, for political junkies and uh, uh, <laughs> Nixon lovers and haters... Uh, marks a crucial turning point in uh, the nation's history and certainly uh, Nixon's career as a politician. And the burglary, by the way, was Larry O'Brien's office. He was right. the chairman of the DNC, and because Nixon was so obsessed with the Kennedys throughout his entire political career, for obvious reasons, Larry O'Brien was a top-ranking uh, um, aide to John F. Kennedy mm -hmm. and also Bobby Kennedy, who, of course, was assassinated in 1968, uh, which probably allowed Nixon to become president. Uh, Kennedy, by no means, had wrapped up the nomination, but he had some momentum going and was assassinated the night that he won the California primary in June of 68. And a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned the famous uh, anniversary regarding the assassination attempt on George Wallace mm -hmm. in 1972, and it's this, these conversations with Charles Colson in which they're talking about planting uh, McGovern literature or left-wing or communist literature mm -hmm. at Bremer's apartment. This is unbelievable stuff, but it's the way Nixon's mind worked. Well, the skullduggery, uh, the chicanery, the uh, the dirty tricks. I mean, that's what they called them themselves, sort of chuckling, chuckling smugly to themselves. Well, in fact, in Watergate, uh, the, the Woodward Bernstein book, they've got a phrase for it that I can't repeat directly on the air, yes. but I'll just call it rat screwing. Yeah. It was a uh, campaign of dirty tricks throughout the 72 campaign to eliminate various... Uh, challengers in the Democratic primary, they basically wanted to run against George McGovern. Um, George McGovern, of course, was 
probably the nicest and most decent man that ever ran for president. He was a great uh, patriot. He uh, was a decorated war pilot in World War II, mm -hmm. unlike Richard Nixon. And, of course, he was an early critic of the Vietnam War. And in 1972, he called for an immediate end of the Vietnam War and a slashing of the Pentagon budget. He knew what was wrong with the systemic creation of the national security state that it so has warped our budget priorities, why we have these massive deficits, and why, frankly, we have all these problems around the world with terrorism and, and uh, people that hate America. It's, uh, it's all connected, and so in some ways Nixon is a culmination of uh, various trends in uh, the American political system, the national security state, and its twisted worldview. But he's also uh, a sort of a crippled human being uh, and a sort of a, psychologically speaking, uh, on par with uh, any great Shakespearean tragic hero. And isn't it amazing to contemplate that between 1952 and 2000 and eight when McCain was the nominee for the Republican uh, nomination there was either Nixon Dole or Bush on every single presidential ticket isn't that remarkable and sad <laughs> that, that tells you what's wrong with our country I think because Nixon was vice president for eight mm -hmm. years he ran in 1960 he ran for president twice elected twice second time in a landslide first time in a sort of split up uh, problem with third parties and, and disarray in the Democratic Party, which uh, he took advantage of. But he wanted to continue that disarray in the Democratic Party, and that was part of the dirty tricks, the concept behind it. And this had been going on. That What's fascinating about the Cutler book are all the conversations that, that he has with Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Colson, those three primarily, about the goings-on regarding dirty tricks. Yeah, and you wonder to what extent uh, the dirty trick idea spilled over into the Reagan camp once uh, a knucklehead uh, with the California Nixon ties like Ed Meese starts to get involved in the picture, and there's all sorts of speculation that can be done there. The two certainly are not unrelated. Um, but I'm just going to quickly go through uh, some details from Chapter 16 of Folsom's uh, book, Nixon, Nixon's Darkest Secrets. It's called The Batterer-in-Chief. Uh, because of the sort of climax that he builds to with this uh, collection of uh, anecdotes and details about Nixon's uh, temper. Um, Nixon's flying fists were usually dispatched as sucker punches, unexpected blows from out of left field when the opponent's guard was fully down. And uh, Batterer-in-Chief is the name of the chapter. And it speculates on a couple of possible incidents or episodes of uh, spousal abuse, but uh, emphasizing here on uh, real uh, documentable cases, uh, Nixon once punched an, uh, a TV consultant uh, who had a shriveled arm and was recovering from major cardiac surgery uh, when he uh, declined to do a last-minute errand for Nixon in the uh, late days of the 1960 presidential campaign. Uh, the guy resigned on the spot, and uh, those who witnessed it believed that it could have killed him uh, since he'd had a rib removed during the surgery, Nixon punched him right in the ribs. Of course, this is all noted in uh, a memo that Rosemary Woods uh, telling this story to uh, Bob Haldeman. I always got to mention Rosemary Woods. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, she's the, uh, on the all-Watergate team. 
She yes, uh, <laughs> she's a, a big name that people like to hear. Pinky Woods is is uh, her character. Right. Uh, in 1952, uh, Vice President-elect Nixon publicly slapped a woman uh, uh, named Zita Remley, a Democrat who'd helped expose one of Nixon's 46 political tricks in which he hired uh, women uh, to phone up and say that Jerry Voorhees, his opponent in a congressional race, is a communist. And that was the 46 race that got yeah. Nixon into Congress. And by the way, he then... Uh, finagled his way onto the House on Un-American Activities Committee, and he made his big famous splash in national politics uh, in the infamous Alger Hiss case. Right. <laughs> uh, about which more later. Yeah. Uh, Nixon also, uh, this is, uh, I'm skipping over and just giving you the highlights here too, folks. Uh, Nixon slapped Air Force J uh, Sergeant uh, Edward Kleitzo at a military airfield near Disney World after telling the world... I am not a crook. I am not a crook. In his surly rage, he slapped this guy. I'm not quite sure of the context of why or this particular guy in particular, but near Disney World, of all places. No one's supposed to be unhappy near Disney World. Uh, and then um, uh, presidential aide Joe Lightian, uh was knocked to the floor on a staircase as Nixon descended in a rage. I'll read you his description. As just as I was about to ascend the stairway, a guy came running down the stairs two at a time. He had a frantic look on his face, wild-eyed like a madman, and he bowled me over. So I kind of lost my balance. And before I could pick myself up, six athletic-looking young men leapt over me, pursuing him. I suddenly realized they were Secret Service agents, that I'd been knocked over by the President of the United States. It was Kissinger, by the way, who uh, used the phrase sullen hostility to describe Nixon's mood in the early days of the second administration. But I want to end with this detail. Uh, 1962, uh, reading from Folsom, in Nixon's most famous public loss of composure, a red-eyed, trembling, hungover, and defeated uh, California gubernatorial candidate told the press, quote, gentlemen, just think what you're going to be missing. You won't have Nixon to kick around anymore because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. On his way off the stage, he told his press secretary, Herb Klein, I gave it to them right in the ass. Yeah. Well, uh, continuing from Folsom, President John Kennedy led a host of political observers who thought Nixon's L.A. performance showed he had flipped his lid and probably ended his political life. In a congratulatory phone call to Governor Pat Brown, who beat Nixon by 300,000 votes, the president declared, uh, you reduced him to the nut house. That last farewell speech of his, it shows that he belongs on the couch. And Governor Brown agreed, saying, quote, this is a very peculiar fellow. I really think that he is psycho. He's an able man, but he's nuts. Exactly. And what's interesting, too, about the, the uh, Folsom book is he recounts an incident from Nixon's childhood that cracked me up where N Nixon's first dirty trick <laughs> occurred when he hit an eight-year-old kid or a seven-year-old kid in the head with a hatchet to steal his jar of pollywogs. Oh, boy. Now, uh, <laughs> we come here not to psychoanalyze Nixon, uh, but to bury him, of course. <laughs> and as we near the end of the program, we have five minutes left. Just in case we uh, run out of time, I want to go to the last paragraph of the aforementioned Hunter Thompson article. Uh, because it's just so apt, and we can take it from here. Uh, not many people have written, uh, he's talking about Joseph Conrad, and... Uh, building up to a Heart of Darkness reference here. Uh, if Conrad were with us today, I think he'd be getting a fine boot out of this Watergate story. Mr. Kurtz in Conrad's Heart of Darkness did his thing. 
Mr. Nixon also did his thing. And now, just as surely as Mr. Kurtz, Mr. Nixon, he did. Yeah, and of course, Hunter S. Uh, uh, Hunter S. Thompson uh, out Mencken to Mencken when Nixon died and used the famous uh, characterization that Nixon was so crooked he had to pay his servants in the morning to screw his pants on, <laughs> which I've always loved that. It's a powerful image. Powerful image, and of course, you know, just recently there's been a big controversy uh, in, in which there's the Congress is calling for an investigation into the Obama leaking of information there, John mm -hmm. McCain. Uh, running around without his space helmet has actually accused the Obama administration of leaking this stuff. And there are open calls for congressional investigations into this special prosecutors. You know, they want to have the drip, drip, drip thing on all of this. Um, I don't think it's any secret that, uh, by the way, that we're using drone attacks. <laughs> They're publicly announced all the time. But in any event, one of the fascinating things about the whole problem with Watergate and what led to the downfall of Richard Nixon was his obsession with with stopping the leaks while at the same time deliberately perpetrating leaks. And one of the fascinating, as more and more of these White House tapes become transcribed, and by the way, there's thousands of hours remaining. Mm. Um, some of the recordings, by the way, are very difficult to ascertain precisely what was said, but in an interesting meeting in the Oval Office... <laughs> On September 18th of 1971 with uh, Ehrlichman, um, Haldeman, and R Tricky Dick, he's talking about uh, acquiring uh, information from the CIA. He says, um, and, and he wants uh, stuff on the assassination of Diem. Uh, one of the amazing things was E. Howard Hunt forged State Department cables trying to link John F. Kennedy uh, with the assassination of Diem, which, of course, never happened. The political dynamite, by the way, that John Dean allegedly discovered in E. Howard Hunt's safe was dropped in the river as he and L. Patrick Gray, who at the time was acting director of the FBI, it was deep-sixed, as they, as they put it. We dropped it into the water over, over the, a Connecticut bridge sometime around Christmas of 1972. What, the head of the FBI destroying evidence. Yeah, with John Dean, and of course we've never known what this political dynamite was, but uh, it's probably linked to the Kennedy assassination mm -hmm. one way or another. Um, we are being told we are out of time. We're, we have kind of conflicting clocks here, so I believe that our reliable engineer, Andrew, is correct. So Yazoo City Calling will be coming up next right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, tune in next week. We'll have another uh, go-around on Tricky Dick. Yeah, there'll be some spill over there. It's, uh, now it's on trial. <laughs> Petersburg, several opposition groups have formed a new left political alliance in an attempt to gain majority political power in Russia. Andrei Davidov... Woke up this morning, mama between me night and day. Tune your radio to 88.3 at 7 p.m. every Monday evening for Yazoo City Calling, an hour-long show of blues roots music from the early half of the 20th century. Your rotating hosts include myself, Morgan Drake, and the show's creator, Jerry Mack. 
come check it out. Sitting on Delma Avenue, watching the cars go by. WCBN FM 